Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast. My name is Paula Favor, and I'm here with my ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. Today is Friday, the 20th of January, 2023, and uh, we're happy to uh, get this year off and running. Uh, this is, our, I believe, our third podcast. Yeah. Kind of losing track of time here. But, sounds, sounds right. But the year is just going by fast, isn't it? it I can't sure believe it. It's all, almost February. Uh, today, we're pleased to bring back a uh, guest we've had in the past, NC Scout. So, NC Scout, welcome back to the Pinelander. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, always a pleasure. And uh, I think uh, one thing I've been excited about is uh, you got a new book out. Uh, it's entitled uh, The Gorilla's Guide to the Baofeng Radio. And uh, so I know, uh, I can see it's been doing pretty well. So... I think uh, in this podcast, we wanted to celebrate that book coming out, and there's so much stuff to talk about, but uh, how do you want to kick this off there, NC Scout? Well, uh, you know, thank you guys uh, <laughs> for, for, for having me on, and, and this, this book, so in its, when, when it was published, when I, I first you know, began writing it a, a while back, um, and then got it kicked out the door. I wrote that book specifically for um, guys like me. <laughs> for guys, yeah, guys that are that are going to be going into, um, you know, that that asymmetric warfare environment where you know you're not necessarily fighting as a conventional force, but you're having to press into service things that we would call common off the shelf. Right. Um, and, and so when, when you think about it like that, you know, we we're kind of currently watching Ukraine very closely and have been for the past year, but it's important to understand that Ukraine is very much a peer on peer warfare environment. That, that is not an asymmetric war. And there are, however, a lot of asymmetric warfare environments that are springing up all across the globe and are going to continue to do so. When you factor in the fact that communications plays such a vital role and the fact that it is probably the most misunderstood topic in all of warfare, you know, when you start talking small unit communications, when you talk, start talking tactical communications, a lot of times you're going to end up with um, either high-end salesmen who are trying to sell you products and they, they're full of buzzwords and they're going to give you all the buzzwords, or you're going to end up with engineers who tell you a lot about capabilities and a lot of that ends up going over your head. So what I wanted to do was distill that knowledge down, utilizing the most common radio in the world currently, which is the Baofeng radio. Right. In all of its incarnations, because there's there's a lot of different ones floating around out there. Uh, But what all can you do with it and write a field manual that is in simple terms, mostly in layman's terms, something that's very simple for for folks to follow that have um, and absolutely no prior knowledge. No uh, prior skills required, but you can pick this book up and go from zero to 100. Everything from addressing communication security, writing an SOI, uh, how to write an SOI. I don't know what that was. Sorry, guys. No, that's all right. Um, little, combo, but, uh, little combo going on there in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyhow. Um, I'm gonna tell you. Let me. I tell you what I like about this this book, um, because I'm not a, a combo guy, and that, that wasn't my background um, in in soft, and 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 neither was Paul's. But 
we have to communicate and we rely heavily on guys like you uh, to make all the magic happen. But the problem is if you're not around, uh, it can, you know, sometimes we get in a pickle. And what this thing does is it really breaks this down for the layman, just like what you're talking about, where a guy like me, I can pick this thing up and I can, I can, I can know enough really to be dangerous um, and get it done uh, without having to continually bother you. And what I've noticed too is a, a lot of uh, the combo guys today, uh, man, they're just knee deep in the information age. I mean, it's it's mostly computers yeah. and all that stuff because these guys have a ton of new technology and new information that's getting thrown at them that they're responsible for. And a lot of these old skill uh, things that you just need to know um, are not just there's just there's just, there just isn't time enough for these guys to really. Uh, get the right. mastery of it enough to, to pass it on to guys like Paul and I. So this book really just does the work and really uh, provides that really nice little handbook for guys like us so we can get out there and, and, and take, you know, this little radio and, and, and make it happen. Exactly. And, and you know, one thing that I want to point out is that the book doesn't necessarily apply to just the Balfang radio. It can apply to any, really any piece of equipment that you're pressing into service in a variety of different roles. You know, the chapter on improvised antennas, those principles don't change based on model of radio. You know, the information that's contained in there applies to pretty much anything that you're going to be pressing into service. And, and there's a lot of knowledge that I condensed in there from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from uh, professional development schools that I went to in the army. And, you know, I, I approach this from a trigger pullers background too, you know, being the uh, 11 Bravo and being a worse guy, we got enough communications knowledge to make our stuff work. And, you know, like the, the communications instruction portion of arsenic, you learn enough to make your stuff work. And then you learn some of those things that you say, Oh man, that that's neat you know, the wire antenna stuff, but you don't really get a, a fundamental knowledge of it. When, when you're able to condense that knowledge into a book and say, okay, now I have a reference that I can go back and I can look at, and it's written in, you know, the, the terms that trigger pullers understand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not written. I'm not an engineer. It's not written for engineers. Uh, I had a guy that I, he was he was being somewhat critical of the book um saying you know the the antenna theory and he's coming from a, a engineering background he said the antenna theory stuff was way oversimplified and that's that was the point yeah bingo it's not <laughs> it's not meant for engineers it's right. you know if, if you want an engineering manual go get an engineering manual and, there, and there's no um, shortage of those and no one's buying them Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason right. why you're number right. one in radio communications on Amazon. There's a reason why you're number one in radio operation on Amazon. I mean, you've 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 uh, cracked the code here. Guys can understand this book. Yeah, it's well, it's it's my sincere wish of of arming people with knowledge of yeah. not just it, it's it's not just uh, you know amateur radio. It's not just uh, all the the cool guy stuff. Um, you know, the, the tactical end of things, it's actual practical knowledge. Um, to, to speak to one of your points and, and something that, that I want to point out to uh, guys that are prospectively getting into the special operations world is that we're, we're going to begin to hear terms like RF spectrum management and electronic warfare management coming into vogue, I think, very, very soon. A, a lot of the, the lessons that are being learned out of Ukraine are focused on that. And, um, you know, the, the electronic warfare assets that the Russians are fielding right now, and I think are, are going to be fielding uh, in a more broad sense soon when they begin their, their uh, second phase of their invasion, because that's on the horizon. Um, what the Iranians are doing, what we're seeing coming out of China, uh, the 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 old ideas that came out of the global war on terror, 
from you know my era and and when you guys were operational the fact that we didn't have real peers that we were fighting we didn't have to pay much attention to the amount of rf energy that we were emitting right so that led to not a lot of radio discipline on the ground that led to a lot of the ideas of um, wanting to coordinate in real time this, this micromanagement, you know, like the land warrior system where, you know, you, you've, you've got little icons of where everybody is on a map and, um, you know, all of these things. And this is giving way to, to mesh networks and uh, all, all this really fancy stuff that looks good on paper. The problem is, is that you're not mitigating the amount of energy that you're putting out and that that radiated energy. Those, those radio signals that you are constantly putting out are tracking you, and they're tracking you in real time. And when you're fighting a peered adversary, or really nowadays with, with a lot of the, the technology that's common and off the shelf, the, the means to monitor this can be done by pretty much anybody out there with, with the proper application of skill. You really want to be mitigating what you're putting out. And that's another one of the points, the, the key points in, in the book is that you're bursting out data. You're bursting out very, very short transmissions. And I talk about in, in very simple ways how to do this with, with common off-the-shelf equipment, utilizing the bow thing, and a little bit of math in there for the one-time pads and, and utilizing uh, some of the digital protocols that are out there that are open source. But your actual time of transmission is very, very short. And so when you're not emitting that RF energy, now you're able to hide and you're able to hide in plain sight. And so with, with the number of um, ISR, Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Drones, the, the C2 assets, the surveillance assets that are out there, we're able to mitigate one of the ways that, that is currently being used to hunt guys on the ground. And you're able to mitigate that. That's a pretty big tool to put in your toolbox. That's a pretty big piece of knowledge to put in there is, is mitigating that, that amount of RF energy. And the fact that you can do it with proper application of skill and a piece of equipment that is very, very inexpensive, that to me is a big force multiplier. Uh, you know, in, there, there's a lot of people out there who say, you know, um, w when they're talking equipment, They'll throw out there a lot of more sophisticated pieces of equipment, right? And more sophisticated radios. They talk about uh, types of, of physical encryption, digital encryption, um, you know, the digital encryption modes that are out there. Uh, DMR is, is one of the most common ones. But what they don't, they don't understand or what they're missing is, is that there are ways to exploit that, a large number of ways to exploit that. And we've been doing this for well over a decade now. It also doesn't answer the question that, say, you're putting out a, a digital signal out of a handheld radio that you're putting into a tactical role. You're emitting a very specific waveform at that point. You're emitting a very specific pattern, what we would call patterns of life if we were conducting surveillance. And so now that's tagging you as a specific target. So while you may have communication security in the form of what you're saying back and forth, you still have a point of origin of where you've transmitted from. And you also have a type of RF energy, a very specific one that's being put out. So if you have an adversary, so like let's, let's say the unconventional warfare aspect of it. Let's say, you know, there, there's a, uh, an ODA that's, that's operating in a, a non-permissive environment, right? Whatever country of the world. And they're utilizing equipment that would be common in the United States, like DMR, right? digital mobile radio. Well, just so happens that the country that they're operating in is that's not common, right? And the security forces of that country that they're operating in, whatever the, you know, the mythical country is, has the ability to monitor all of this in, in the RF spectrum because they do. They generally do. Counterintelligence uh, groups all around the world have that capability. Now there is a specific pattern of life that identifies that group as they're operating. You know, when you're operating with analog equipment and you know how to configure it 
uh, with common off-the-shelf components, with free software that's available in any corner of the world. I carry uh, all, all of the software, the, the entire package for a lot of uh, different applications, radio included, on my keychain on, on a small thumb drive. I can literally take this anywhere in the world, any corner of the world that I get a laptop or uh, a tablet or some sort of electronic device that I can load up one of these programs. I can use an analog radio to send out digital transmissions that do not fingerprint me as being a representative of the American government. You know, it's, it's little things like that when you're operating in an unconventional warfare environment that becomes critical. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, a lot of those lessons get lost when we start talking uh, high technology and, you know, a lot of people are trying to sell a lot of equipment out there. The skill kind of goes by the wayside and people aren't necessarily thinking outside the box. Hmm. You know, uh, Matt, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the guys that uh, knows the three foot drop test on a radio. So uh, most people may not know that. I know sometimes the radio responds to that, but I'm definitely the guy <laughs> that uh, can be dangerous <laughs> You know, when I read uh, something like this book, but yeah, I was just something that uh, is just kind of uh, turning over my head as you're talking a lot of things, actually. But one is uh, what do we know is uh, specifically that's going on in Ukraine uh, that either the Russians are doing or do they do they know this uh, or do our Ukrainian brothers know, uh, you know, know this information? You know, can you can you speak about that? Sure. Sure. Well, you know, there's been a lot of analysis that's gone on back and forth uh, coming out of this. Some of it's been good. Some of it's been not so good uh, opinion based stuff. And one of the more interesting ones, to me, at least, has concerned communications. And a lot of the people have been um, critical of the Russian efforts there and have been pointing uh, some things out. And, and there's been some interesting takes on that. Um, one of them has been the lack of the Azart radio system that's been fielded to the frontline troops. Hmm. And the fact that uh, almost a year ago now, because it was mid-February when, when the uh, initial invasion kicked off, that they were fielding a lot of Balfang radios. And these were showing up. You know, Now, we had seen these in Syria, uh, both in the hands of, of ISIS uh, groups like the YPG, uh, the Kurds in the Rozava region, we, we had seen these. Um, you know, we, we saw obviously a lot of analog radios by use of uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan. But we were seeing them being fielded by a conventional military force, uh, one that, that the United States has considered a peer uh, for a long time now, for many generations. And so this was kind of a, an interesting fact to point out that a lot of the pundits were saying, well, th this owes to a lack of sophistication. They weren't ready. They're not, you know, the Russians aren't a first world military. Um, you know, I kind of come from the, the ideological framework that it is very dangerous to, um, to, to assume that your enemy is weak mm. when they're actually not. And to, Absolutely. uh, essentially overestimate your own skill. And this, this is uh, evidence of that. Now it's important to understand why, why were they fielding Balfang radios? And, and uh, there was one image in particular from about a year back and it was a, a small SOI card or uh, signals operating instructions uh, that, that was paired with the Balfang. Uh, and it was a UV 82 specifically. That was the model that they were using. Why were they doing that? So going all the way back to 2014 in Donbass, um, I had a number of pieces that, that were originally written, both in Ukrainian and Russian, uh, were translated by one of my contacts and sent over to me, and I had them posted up on a brush beater site. And it was talking about the communications that were being fielded in Donbass and their experiences with it. And... The conclusion of that, especially on the, the Ukrainian side, was the rapid adoption of digital mobile radio, or DMR. 
for a number of different things, right? And this was the technological solution to communications issues. Well, DMR works very, very well at the tactical level. It's, it's well suited for that. It is uh, similar to uh, P25, which is uh, public service digital radio here in the United States. Um, it's used in, in other corners of the world. But DMR is the, the tactical application of that. It, it lends itself very well to this. Well, the next generation Russian radio right, their version of Singars, if you will, or ASEPs. Um, it's called the Azart Radio. And the Azart Radio system is new. It does have some bugs with it, but the digital protocol itself is, at least on a uh, spectrum, if you were looking at it on, on a waterfall, looks similar to DMR. Uh, specifically, if, if anybody really wants to nerd out on, on this stuff, it's... Uh, the, the protocol is specifically called NXDN, um, but it is close. It looks close to DMR. We know that the Russians have put a lot of development into electronic warfare capabilities. And every first world nation military on the face of the earth and, and even some third world uh, militaries have spectrum analysis capability and can rapidly target with indirect fire they can rapidly target those signals. One of the reasons that their forces that they used, the military forces they used on their first invasion were limited to analog might have partly been due to supply chain issues with fielding the Azart radio. But I think that it was more likely so that they could prevent electronic fratricide. So that they would know, all right, the Ukrainians are going to be using DMR. So now we're going to stick to analog only, utilizing old school methods, you know, brevity matrices and, you know, the SOI and, and the, the old school planning. That way, all of the digital communication signals that are on the battlefield are coming from them. And we can rapidly target those with indirect fire. Now, it's not a perfect strategy. It doesn't work every time, as, as we've seen. They got bogged down in a lot of places. But we're going to see this strategy being fielded more and more as this war drags on because it is effective. Now, that limits the Ukrainians. We've, we've already seen that the, a lot of the, uh, the International Brigade volunteers that were over there um, that, that are still operating over there, they're being limited to analog radios and a lot of uh, what we would call legacy equipment. They're using a lot of bow things to try and confuse those electronic warfare assets from the Russian side. Um, there, there's been many outlets uh, kind of, you know, I'll say, I, I don't want to call it dark web outlets, but kind of, kind of the gray zone uh, intelligence side of things, you know, th things that are still open source, but not necessarily in the mainstream. Um, you know, things that you would find kind of on Reddit or maybe, you know, some of the, the shadier corners of Twitter. Um, but people have been making these statements. They've been saying this is exactly what they were doing. And, and the electronic warfare that's being conducted on both sides. You're finding those Baofeng radios very commonly in use uh, on, on both of those sides. And so, you know, the, the book and, and, you know, to, to bring it back to the book, um, I'm having a lot of people reach out wanting to translate that book into Ukrainian, into German, interestingly enough, into Portuguese, yeah. um, for, you know, for, for <laughs> I think no. obvious reasons for <laughs> listeners, because Brazil is pretty spicy right now. Yeah, um, but, you know, it, it's that it's written because of the techniques. The, the book is written specifically for the techniques based on the realities of, of the modern battlefield, you know, and, and the lessons that are in there are not anything that I think are, are necessarily uh, earth shattering. A lot of it goes back to the communications knowledge that, that we gained and were being applied by special operations forces in Vietnam and into the, the cold war, what was being utilized, uh, data burst modes are being utilized in Europe. Um, you know, and it's the modern application of that. 
how do you do this with common off-the-shelf equipment? Hmm. The um, the radio that I'm, I, you know, I have I have uh, a couple of these at the house. Man does. In order to get, you know, if I get this book, am I going to be able to um, really? take this thing to the next level? I mean, with, with just little I know on with this book? A hundred percent. If if you grab up a couple of those radios. And you can I get mean, them on Amazon or anything. I mean, they, you know, Baofengs right. are easily, readily available. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, just 20, the, yeah, just the layman's, hours. sorry, Matt, sorry. No, yeah, just no, the, no, no. Yeah, Go just ahead. the, uh, the layman's, uh, uh, you know, information Baofeng is a Chinese radio inexpensive and then you've got uh, you know various uh, megahertz that you can operate on and so this is uh, you know a little walkie-talkie if you will but uh, this but, is this yeah, has a good push on it but it's also you know the other thing about you know my uh, my, my Baofengs is it's got way more capability than the average guy knows what to do with it even though it's like an off-the-shelf radio I mean the layperson is looking at this thing that you can do a lot of things with a Baofeng that I'm obviously not trained up on. Well, one of the, the more interesting things that it's capable of doing with almost no configuration or, or prior knowledge is it can transmit and receive on two different frequencies simultaneously. Mm. Wow. So if you, you pull out, if, if you pull out that bow thing, you hold it in front of you, hit the menu button, and go to menu option number seven. All right, menu option number seven is, uh, it says TDR. Let's transmit and dual receive. What that means is that you, you have two frequencies, a top one and a bottom one. And in the book, I, I go into every one of the menu options, what they all do, how to configure one for uh, various different uses. Um, but with that TDR, so I always uh, keep my radios in VFO mode or frequency mode. Um, I don't load anything into the memory, uh, into the, the, um, the I, I don't load any channels into a radio that I'm utilizing for a tactical purpose because of the exploitation of it. You know, if I get shot and I go down or I get captured, and now that radio is going to be exploited. They're going to hand that off to an Intel guy who's going to rip all the data out of it, who's going to be looking through it, who's going to be trying to map my associations and my capabilities and everything, right? So I don't load anything into the memory. I always keep it in frequency mode. So I have a top frequency and a bottom one. I have one that I receive on, one that I transmit on. And if you load one for VHF, right? And the other for UHF. Now I'm receiving on in, in one band space and I am transmitting on another. And so with a, a signals intelligence team, because we always have to assume that if, if we're working in an unconventional warfare environment, that there are some signet guys who are signals intelligence guys who are listening for us, who are actively looking for us, right? Even if not, it's still pretty cool to be able to have that capability relatively inexpensively, right? And so if, if I'm transmitting on one frequency, receiving on another, and my uh, wh whoever I'm coordinating with, right? So like say yeah, it's at the, the tactical level, fire and maneuver level, um, you know, I'm, I'm alpha team. My Bravo team over here has theirs reversed. So they're transmitting on one, receiving on the other, right? And so anybody that's monitoring us is only hearing half of the conversation. If we are keeping our transmission short, under three seconds, if we're using uh, our brevity codes, if we've actually done all the work that needs to be put into our ComSec, we're going to be pretty effective. Well, you, you mentioned something else, too, when you were talking about what's going on in, in Ukraine, and that is um, there was a decision for – Russia to go to legacy communications and allow the Ukrainians to sort of use the, the more modern, uh, up-to-date communications. And 
so my my question on that is because I, I have this feeling and, and and you can confirm or deny it, but when you go when you go backwards, when you go back to some of the legacy techniques, okay, um, those seem to be more difficult for the modern SIGINT guys to uh, decipher. And let me give you an example. Like the, some of the hardest encryption, I think, um, for modern uh, SIGINT guys is, is like child's encryption. Um, the stuff that you teach your kid, you know, picket fence and all these like stupid little uh, encryption codes that um, are almost so simple that the modern SIGINT systems aren't really designed to uh, quickly decipher. Am I, is there any truth to that? Partly, partly. So what I'll say is this, is one of the, the truths that I learned in Iraq and, and was, you know, kind of constantly told to me and, and my peers by people who were a lot wiser than us was that basic technology low technology defeats high technology and that high technology will always be trying to seek a solution for something that is usually found with low technology, if that makes sense. So applying that to signals intelligence, um, a lot of what's being fielded for SIGINT attempts to accomplish two goals simultaneously. It's, you know, we know that the, the goal of intelligence in, in general, of, of any of the domains of intelligence, is exploitation, trying to gain some sort of exploitative value. And we also know that, you know, a lot of money gets thrown as soon as you say the, the intelligence buzzword, a lot of money gets thrown in that direction, usually for equipment solutions. And so those two goals that, that are being um uh, trying to be accomplished simultaneously is the expediency of finding the point of origin or, or the poo, uh, so to speak, the point of origin of the signal. So locating that, that emission of the RF energy and then trying to use electronic means to decode or decrypt it. And there's a lot of software out there that can break fairly robust forms of encryption out there, not necessarily um, uh, like AES-256 is in theory to be, you know, unbreakable. And th- that that may or may not be correct. I'm not a mathematician. But what I can say is, what I can say about that is, is that the devices that are utilizing AES-256 are still transmitting in a method that is rapidly identifiable. And so if you can gain the point of origin on that, and you know where that signal is coming from, I can exploit it through those means rather than dedicating all my time to trying to break it. Uh, with, with, with modern signals intelligence uh, professionals out there, a lot of times because of the, this race with, with uh, quantum computing and everybody's trying to figure out how to break what we used to think was unbreakable. And because of that, just like with, with communications, uh, the, the topic of communications, a lot of the old school cryptanalysis methods have sort of fallen by the wayside. Uh, that's looked at as, as old hat. And, you know, to, to, be, to be blunt about it, there's not really a lot of money to be found by using old school techniques. Everybody wants to chase a dollar. Everybody wants to chase what's new. And, you know, that's with the technology end of things. And so to your point, just just as you were saying, a lot of uh, your signet guys out there are more reliant on the technology to accomplish those goals rather than the physical techniques themselves. And uh, that is something that's fairly concerning, but it is, at least from what I've seen, that's something that is endemic in, in a lot of places, it's not just the United States. Um, a lot of the hard skills, the, the old school, the physical skills are, in fact, unfortunately, fallen by the wayside. But I do think they're going to come back. I do think they're going to come back. 
Yeah, I think because I think there's you know you're kind of mentioning some of the benefits of making things asymmetric, and so this is one of the ways of doing that is is going back to the old school techniques that your adversary may not be familiar with, and uh, you know who can get there quickest, who can right. who can devolve the fastest. But this kind of segues into your next uh, your next book, I think that you're working on, which I'd, I'd like you to. That's right. Tease That's a bit right. for us, if you wouldn't mind. Well, I'm currently about 50% of the way through it. Um, it is the Gorilla's Guide to Signals Intelligence. Uh, very much like the Gorilla's Guide to the Bow thing, this book dives into the process of intelligence, what is utilized uh, based on common off-the-shelf equipment, software programs that are out there, uh, diving into all of those techniques that, that are required for signals intelligence collection on the ground, and most importantly, exploitation. So how do you do that? Uh, how do you exploit these things? You know, it, it's, I'm exploring a lot of things from, uh, a lot of concepts from the other side of the equation that are, are opposite to communications. How is all of this stuff exploited? And I think that this is going to be a really important book for a lot of prospective trigger pullers out there to understand not necessarily how you can implement signals intelligence um, at the small unit level, most often inexpensively, but how, which I think is a critical lesson for me, how you could be exploited yourself if you do not utilize proper communications techniques because going back to to something we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast the the whole concept of of uh, mitigating the rf spectrum right mitigating the amount of rf energy that we are putting out readily this is going to become the future of warfare just like how the the uh, proliferation of thermal devices and, and the utilization of ISR, thermal on ISR platforms by a lot of different countries out there that are hostile to the United States, that has changed how we have to think about small unit tactics. The RF spectrum is going to do that as well. And we're gonna to have to change how we think. We're gonna to have to change how we implement communications. And a lot of what was old is going to become new again. The signals intelligence book is, is going to explore a lot of that, how you mitigate that, but also how you can exploit that on the ground with common off the shelf and, and fairly inexpensive equipment. And in some cases, like with, with the software uh, that, that we're going to be talking about, you know, DSD plus is one example of it. It's free. Well, you know, you talked about RF signature and to me, it's sort of a no brainer if you're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, and you're, you're uh, transmitting, okay, a signal. Pretty pretty easy to pick up, okay? You're, you're the only thing out there that's doing something strange. Um, how does this apply in, like, an urban environment? Well, a couple of ways. A couple of ways. Um, if you're in an area, a rural environment that is absent RF signals, you know, that's that's one thing. If you're in an urban environment, one thing that you may want to do, or a technique that I utilize, is if, if I'm the guy that's tasked with setting up communications for an operation in an area, I want to establish what the baseline is for communications in that given environment. I want to know what's being emitted, what frequencies it's being emitted on, and even the source of those. And, and here's a perfect example. So I was running uh, communications and the, uh, what I call the RTO course, the advanced RTO course, and uh, the signals intelligence course. I was running it in an undisclosed location out west in a, um, you know, a, a semi-suburban environment. When we were doing a site survey, uh, and, and I was creating that baseline of signals. I noticed that they had an abundance of water meters out there that were in the 150 megahertz range. 
Now, you're going to find a lot of public safety and public service stuff there, too. We don't want to interfere with those communications because that's going to get us made pretty quickly. Water meters, on the other hand, are constantly emitting a digital burst signal. How did I know those were water meters? Because I direction found the signal on one of them and it was going to a water reservoir. Plus, you know, a, a little bit of uh, prior knowledge going out there, a little bit of knowledge about the the uh, the sound that those water meters make, the sound that digital protocol makes when it is bursting that data out. I know that if we emit our signals somewhere close to that frequency, anybody who may be listening for us, anybody who may be looking for us in an unconventional warfare environment, they're going to ignore those signals. The reason that they're going to ignore those is they're going to say, oh, that's just a water meter. Maybe it has a faulty transmitter and it's slightly off frequency. They're going to completely ignore it. They're going it, to, it's, it's, the concept is the same as if you're wearing a pair of sunglasses and they get a scratch on it. For the first little bit of time, you're, you're noticing that scratch. After, you know, a short amount of time of wearing it, your brain no longer processes that scratch. It becomes normal. It's part of the baseline. It's always going to be there. You filter it out, you ignore it, and you drive on. Signals is the same way. And so in an urban environment, what I would suggest is doing that, is figuring out where those innocuous signals are that nobody's really going to be paying much attention to. You're not interfering with them because you are, you're also not necessarily transmitting all the time because all of your other, um, you know, noise and light discipline, right, all of those other concepts certainly apply to your communications. But if you set up your SOI to parallel or a handrail, you know, going back to, to a land nav technique, we're going to be handrailing those, those signals. A lot of times we're going to get skipped over completely. And we're not using our voice. We're using digital bursts. That's exactly how I would do it. Yeah, that's awesome advice, um, and and that's that's going to be useful for a lot of folks. Um, let's let's pivot over to Brazil because you brought that up earlier, and uh, obviously things are getting really entertaining down. Dicey. They're yeah. getting entertaining yeah. down there. I mean, uh, uh, just to bring everybody up to speed. I mean, there was an election. There was a lot of questions about the election. They were using Dominion voting machines. I mean, all the normal stuff that we kind of saw up here that. We're raising red flags. Um, you know, we were watching on uh, television the, the huge turnouts for uh, Bolsonaro, uh, the relatively tepid uh, sort of enthusiasm for Lula. Uh, right. Lula's uh, ties to uh, the CCP. And um, now it seems that. Uh, Bolsonaro is, he almost looks like this legitimately elected uh, president in exile almost. Um, right. Uh, Brazil's kind of wanting this guy back in the country, you know, to kind of, I don't know, get a handle on him and uh, maybe uh, throw some charges on him. But anyway, just take us from there. I mean, that's kind of where we're at now. We're still having a lot of protests. I mean, the people are right. storming the, uh, the government buildings. Uh, so where, 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 do we, yeah, where do we go from here? I mean, what, what happens in Brazil? It's well, it, it's just as you pointed out, they are following a very similar playbook, a shockingly similar playbook that we saw two years ago here in the United States. Very, very similar playbook all the way down to uh, the, the Q shaman uh, that, you know, that clown with the Viking helmet on that, you know, <laughs> Conan the Barbarian yeah, yeah. going into so the capital. Yeah, right. One of my favorite characters. <laughs> yeah. They they even had one of those. They they had a guy who was literally a one for one for him, but painted up in, in the Brazilian colors. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I saw that photo. You know, that was and, awesome. And, I mean, I don't think that he took control of, of the House of Representatives <laughs> for the day. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe he did. But um, it, it's just very interesting how this, this playbook seems to be stuck on repeat. You know, we've seen all this before, the Dominion voting machines, the irregularities, the fact that, you know, the, the one guy who can't draw a crowd 
gets elected by the most votes ever um, in in that nation's history of elections. It just doesn't seem plausible. Um, But it is interesting. Bolsonaro left the country. Uh, He was not at the inauguration because the the Brazilian government, the the left wing end of the Brazilian government, which has apparently seized power, has come into power. uh, They're saying that they, they want to uh, put him in prison. They want to put him in prison for corruption. Well, you got to understand that Bolsonaro, two days before his own inauguration, was stabbed on stage at a political rally. That's right. Mm. They tried to kill this guy. They tried to kill him repeatedly. They're going to kill him, right? So he heads up to Florida, uh, where you know Florida is contemporarily kind of the the center of a, a lot of interesting political things. Um, but he heads up to Florida. He's currently there now. And we have a left-wing politician here in the United States that said that we need to extradite him. Like these are legal terms. We need to extradite him to Brazil as a criminal. Now he, he hasn't been charged with any crimes. This is just what the left is pointing out. Right. So we have a government in Brazil now that is, very closely aligned with the Chinese Communist Party and the World Economic Forum, right? So they are they're, they're partners. You know, Lula is is a World Economic Forum alumni. Um, he has deep ties with all of that. He's also a a well known communist, former communist. But where this goes? So the Brazilian military is not playing ball with this and they're not going along with this and they do not back Lula at all. The problem is just like what we saw in Colombia with the election of Gustavo Petro is they are not getting a strong response out of Washington, D.C. And so if you initiate a counter-revolution, essentially, uh, like, like what happened in Nicaragua with the Contras, if you initiate a counter-revolution against the left-wing government without the backing of a nation state, uh, a friendly nation state, it doesn't matter how many military victories you gain. You're not going to gain any friends in, in you know, the, the broader sense. And so with, with the Biden administration, uh, currently their, their policy of being very friendly to Lula, they invited him to the White House, even though he is part and parcel uh, of, of the Chinese Communist Party's hegemony in South America as well as Central America. Uh, he's, he's a big player in their Belt and Road Initiative, which is uh, an, an economic alliance. Of course, you got to understand that BRICS, which is going to be in competition with the U.S. dollar uh, to become the world's uh, reserve currency, Brazil is the B in BRICS. You know, so you've got Lula, who is part and parcel of all this, 100 percent on board with all this. And the Biden administration is backing. They're showing signs of public support because, again, you know, they, they followed the same script in getting this guy to power or helping this guy into power. So it's it's certainly going to be interesting. Uh, the Brazilian military said based on their uh, January 8th, it was the January 8th protest for them. Uh, they're not going to round any of the protesters up, even though they were ordered to do so, that they are not going to cooperate with uh, the Garda Civil, which is their uh, national police force. They're not cooperating with them. Um, So it it is going to be very interesting. Do I think that an overt civil war is going to kick off imminently there? No, I, I do not, because they do not have any backing from from any other nation state that's going to say, hey, we're going to continue to trade with you. We're going to continue to uh, give you favorable nation status. You know, that that's in in the the uh, the geopolitical scheme of it all. That's the real reason that civil wars either kick off or they don't is who is willing to continue to do trade with the government that is going to be taking its place. And if you're talking about a military junta of the, the largest economy in South America taking over and nobody is, is doing trade with them any longer, they're going to be in a worse position than they would be 
um, under uh, Lula's government. So I would say as of right now, they're very hesitant to initiate that civil war. It's very similar to Colombia. Colombia is in a very, very similar position uh, with Gustavo Petro. And one one of, if not the first act that Gustavo Petro did in Colombia when he came into power last year was he began to prosecute the leaders of the military for war crimes right. against the FARC. Right. It, this is, and, and he kind implicated of a, Kind of a purge States of the system. Way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's a purge, right? I mean, you're trying to, you're trying to get uh, your threat, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to eliminate the threat. I mean, I'm looking at Brazil. Uh, this is a huge country for, you know, you can go on Google Maps and take a look yeah, at this. About if you're not 200 familiar. million. A uh, huge, yep. huge uh, portion of South America. Uh, tons of natural resources, obviously, with the Amazon and everything running through there. Um, surrounded by all types of countries. So um, I'm looking at this thing as, man, this is like ripe for unconventional warfare. Uh, oh, it is. But like it what, is. but well, like you said, um, they're going to have to have a support mechanism. They're going to have to have something that, that is able to support these freedom fighters. Um, but I, I agree with you. I don't think there's going to be anything, uh, any crazy uh, changes in the near future. But I'm looking down the road here, uh, one, two years. Um, this thing just looks ripe for uh, civil war. It does. It does. And, and if there is a major political change in the United States, and there may very well be, uh, with the, the unpopularity of the Biden administration, with the fact that he, he has a very serious brewing scandal right now with... I think it's uh, as of right now, it's 17 uh, batches of classified documents that have, quote unquote, been discovered uh, Mm. by his legal team. This this is this is only going to get worse. So as things continue to deteriorate um, domestically for for the Democrats, for the, the leftists here in the United States, if there is a major change, let's say, you know, we get a Republican in as president and. We maintain control of the House of Representatives, if not the Senate, in in the next election cycle. I would expect major changes in South America to be initiated. Um, You know, there there is a pretty serious faction inside of the intelligence community that fortunately is still pro-America. And, you know, we saw early signs of this. You know, in the the later days of the Trump presidency, with the attempted color revolution in Venezuela and the uprising that occurred in Cuba, I think that that was a a preview of things to come. If that happens and Brazil begins to uh, really kick off, they get that signal from Washington. Hey, you know, go for it. We're going to see Brazil erupt into a civil war which the military, because the Brazilian military is isolated from the Brazilian government. It is a separate entity. It, it, it doesn't work like it does here in the United States. But when that happens, when that occurs, I would, I would say that they're probably going to gain a very quick popular victory uh, over, over the, the civil guard there and, and whatever military forces that the government of Brazil can muster we would see a civil war kick off almost simultaneously in Colombia. And we're likely to see one in Venezuela as well. Now, if that happens, you're going to see the Chinese step in. That's going to be the first overt incursion of Chinese military forces because they've been operating there for a long time, but they have economic alliances with them. The Russians do as well. We're going to see them, move in to bolster their ally in Venezuela with Maduro, who is a dyed-in-the-wool leftist. The guy is a communist. Of course, uh, his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, came in in 2004 in a military coup, and he's a leftist as well, but he he ended up becoming the the leader of the Venezuelan military and ousted the, the prior government. And since then, they have been a beachhead for all of the the Chinese communists and the Russian activities 
going on in South America. The and United that, States is kind of kind of just it, it's almost like we're hapless. We we completely yeah. forgot the Monroe Doctrine. That's what I was going to kind of hapless. To try I was going to bring that us. up. Yeah, the uh, something I that was brought to my mind recently, and I've been just kind of taking all this in, is uh, from one of my African friends, and uh, he he noted that hey, you know, China is very involved in Africa. I mean, this is kind of a duh thing. They they. Uh, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of roads, uh, airport construction, mining. Uh, of course, uh, all that goes with uh, the rights to that. But what, what he said was very disconcerting, that is uh, the U.S. is not really involved at all. I'm not advocating that we nation build. Uh, but uh, like you said, uh, Monroe Doctrine, uh, it's like we're not really involved at all. And, uh, you know, I would be talking at my fourth point, but... Um, it seems like, you know, China and Russia are a lot more involved in the in South America than we are. Anytime, showing. Yeah, anytime we've been involved in a world war or whatever, I mean, it's always been our adversary's dream. Yeah. If they could have some sort of, uh, you know, play, launching pad, if you would, in, in our hemisphere. I mean, we saw that yeah. with, uh, with Mexico, the attempts with Mexico during World War II and uh, – but Brazil would be just such a prize for the yeah. CCP. I mean, it's a large population. Right, right in our right in our backyard. Yeah. Yep. Right. And with Lula, they have it. And he is, he, Lula is a Chinese Communist Party puppet. Mm. And he's, he is lock stock, fully supported with them. Um, you know, he's, he's made statements uh, that, that he, Completely, you know, he he endorses BRICS, and that is a a major point of contention for the United States. The fact that the Biden administration is so blindly going along with this mm-hmm. and seemingly has no plan to counter it, it's very very disconcerting to me. Well, what's going on with uh, with Biden? Uh, to me, and I'd like to get your thoughts, but it looks like he's just become. Um, undefendable i mean indefensible right i mean it's it's like the corruption is just kind of getting so bad uh it almost looks like they realize that they just need to let this guy go uh because you know it just all of a sudden you know this guy's just got you know documents everywhere i mean it's like all the dirt's just coming out but all this stuff just smells like a big uh national intelligence state operation to me i mean this looks like it's time for this guy to go home otherwise he's gonna you know, Mr. Crazy's going to think he's going to be uh, up for re-election in 2024. I think they realize that his usefulness is, has run out. Am I am I seeing this wrong? No, I agree 100%. I, I think that at this point, they, just as you said, the corruption is so bad, the, the rot is so bad on the foundation of the House that you can't ignore it anymore. You can't turn a blind eye to it anymore. And I, I truly think that he has, I think that this, this classified document issue is way more severe than, than what we even know. There, there very well could be at, at you know, this point in time, this is a speculation that I'm making, but there very well could be an element of the fact that he has been selling classified mm-hmm. secrets mm-hmm. to someone, whether that's a nation state entity whether that is a business entity, it makes no difference. But just knowing what we know about the Bidens, about the, the pay-for-play schemes that they've been running, that you know Hunter Biden has just been this, this walking disaster. I mean, the guy's a degenerate. And, and with all of that said, it is very likely, it is not outside of the realm of, of possibility or plausibility that at least to some degree that the classified material that has, is quote unquote being discovered as having just been laying around in a garage beside a Corvette, you know, wherever else, all of a sudden, right. I think that, that things are, are going to start emerging that he has been selling national secrets somewhere, somehow as, as part of the whole pay for pay for play scheme that, that has been the hallmark of, of their policy for a long time now. 
Now, as far as uh, where this goes, uh, that's anybody's guess. I expect, you know, that there already is a, uh, a uh, special counsel that's been appointed over the matter. You know, he's got some interesting left-wing ties as well. So we'll see where that's going to go. I'm an eternal optimist about it all. But, um, you know, with that said, uh, I think what we're going to see is something akin to Nixon and Watergate. Mm. Um, I think that there'll probably be as, as the, you know, the walls start closing in on Biden. I think that there's going to be a Saturday Night Massacre uh, style firings of, you know, he, he's going to fire everybody. And I think that the, the left wing political establishment in the United States, the Democrat political establishment, sees that, that Biden is so corrupt, just as I said, that you can't ignore it anymore. You can't ignore the stuff that he's been he's been doing. And so um, this is a pretty optimistic statement to make. But I think that, that some of them are saying, yeah, hey, it's 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 time we walk away from him. Because even though he is the leader of the Democrat Party, just like with Nixon, he's going to damage us so badly in the long run that we have to get rid of this guy. You know, the Republicans had to do that with Nixon. When he began to be exposed, everything that he had going on, hey, you know, they they went to the White House. They said, you need to resign. This is this is it. This is the end of the line. We, We can't deal with this anymore. I yeah, think they're just they're just they're just trying to. Biden. I think you're right. I think they're just trying to save their brand while they can. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, my friend, it was uh, great again to have you back on the Pinelander. Uh, you got a great book out there. You got another book coming down the pike. Uh, I think uh, I know that that book will be useful to a lot of a lot of special operators and a lot of people that uh, just uh, want to be ready for whatever happens. Uh, something you said that uh, really just resonated with me is a lot of what is old is going to become new again. Yeah, and I think uh, that is always good to to think about and ponder uh, to prepare for whatever. And uh, what I thought about was, I think that's something that uh, Einstein once said. He said, "I don't know what kind of weapons World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones." And uh, I'd, I'd hate to see that happen, but the, the idea is, um, yeah, just go back to old school, get back to uh, the basics of uh, what America, what made America great, and uh, you know your musket and uh, your hatchet, and uh, you know you keep your powder dry and defend your kin and your family, and, communicate. and, uh, and communicate. yeah, and communicate, move and communicate. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a wild year. Uh, it's already started off. Uh, with a bang. But uh, yeah, once again, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. I think we're all a lot more smarter for having listened to you. Always. And uh, so, Thank hey, uh, Godspeed to you uh, as uh, this book gains ground and uh, educates many. Thank you, sir. Thank you. God bless y'all. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander podcast. If you enjoy our unique content, please consider supporting our sponsors. Soft News, providing special operations news from around the world. It's where Paul and I go to keep abreast of what's going on within the soft community. Check them out at soft.news. Blacksmith Publishing, been serving the warrior class since 2013. They have great titles written for warriors, by warriors. If you're looking for excellent reference material or just want to unwind with a great novel, be sure to check out the bookstore located at Blacksmith publishing.com and if you're looking for some cool Pinelander apparel head on over to the general store located at pinelandergeneralstore.com that's all one word pinelandergeneralstore.com have a great selection of shirts hats jackets sweaters stickers patches artwork and a whole lot more check out the store at pinelandergeneralstore.com If you're interested in helping develop our country's next generation of warriors, uh, please consider donating to the American Agogi Project. The mission of the project is to foster an environment producing able-bodied citizen warrior men of fine character. And we'll be officially launching the project in 2023 in celebration of uh, Blacksmith Publishing's 10th anniversary. Until our next meeting, stay mentally and tactically smart. 
physically and spiritually strong and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. May God continue to bless Pineland.